Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. In this episode, my guest is George Weigel, the author of Letters to a Young Catholic. George is the Distinguished Senior Fellow of Washington's Ethics and Public Policy Center. He is a Catholic theologian and author of more than 30 books. His other works include Witness to Hope, the biography of Pope John Paul II, Lessons in Hope, To Sanctify the World, and many others. In the conversation, George and I discuss seeing clearly Flannery O'Connor and the perils of nihilism, making sense of suffering, both and thinking, the wisdom of humility, the role of beauty, and much more. All right, without any further delay, please welcome the wise and gracious George Weigel. All right, well, George, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thank you. Good to be with you. It's a pleasure to have you. And today I'm excited to get into your book, Letters to a Young Catholic. But before we specifically get into the book, I wanted to um, spend a little bit of time and maybe ask how this all got started. I know you've written several books on Catholicism over the decades. How did it all begin? Well, I suppose you could say it began when I was born in Baltimore in 1951. <laughs> um, I have been uh, involved in Catholic apologetics, I suppose you'd call it, trying to explain the faith to people, uh, really since the late 1970s. In, uh, in the subsequent decades, I've written 29 books, uh, including two volumes of biography of Pope St. John Paul II. Uh, I have to say this book we're discussing today, Letters to a Young Catholic, is one of my favorites. Oh, great. It's a it's a favorite because it was fun to write. It's also a favor, favorite because I had to be talked into doing it. Uh, my publisher, Basic Books, this is in the maybe 2004, 2005, had a series called Letters to a Young Blank. Everything, letters to a young lawyer, letters to a young doctor, letters to a young golfer, (laughs) letters to a young chef. I mean, all sorts of stuff. And uh, the editor-in-chief at Basic Books in those days was a dear friend of mine named Liz McGuire. And she said to me, I want you to do letters to a young Catholic. And I said, Liz, I don't want to do letters to a young Catholic. I had just done a book couple of years before called The Truth of Catholicism. And I said, I think I'm just written out on on that sort of thing. Well, Liz did not take no for an answer and kept pressing this and kept pressing this. And then uh, I finally said to her, if I recall, after a lengthy evening of barbecue and bourbon, <laughs> um, Look, if I get an idea that gets me interested in this, I'll do it. But I'm not going to do it just to do it because it'll be a bad book. Well, about a week later, I was on a nonstop from Dulles Airport outside of Washington to 
that foretaste of hell known as Los Angeles International Airport. Mm -hmm. And somewhere over Ohio, the idea came into my head, do it as a tour. You know, hang particular aspects of Catholic faith and practice on specific places around the world. And by the time I got to LAX, to Los Angeles International, I had the whole book outlined. Mm. And, <laughs> and that it was great fun to write it uh, that way. Uh, the book touches down on many places that are close to my life, close to my heart. And the book has continued to sell for over 20 years. Um, in uh, in uh, 2015, we did a second edition, a revised and expanded edition, in which I added four more tour stops to the original group of, I think it was 14 of the original. Um, so the book has been very much part of my life uh, really since, I don't know, 2004, 2003, 2004, uh, somewhere uh, in there. Mm -hmm. Is that similar to some of your other projects? Do you have a pretty clear outline? Does it come together in a way, a bit of a vision rather quickly like that? Or was this unique? Depends on, depends on the book. Um, uh, the outline for the first volume of my John Paul II biography, Witness to Hope, was 124 pages long. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you just had to have a detailed structure like that for a complex task, like telling the story of the life of one of the seminal figures of the 20th century in in a book. Um, other Other things I've done have... Uh, you know, obviously they're less comprehensive outlines, but yes, outlines are a good idea. I have no idea whether people are still taught how to outline in school, <laughs> but if they aren't, which I suspect uh, is the case, uh, that's a loss because, uh, especially with a, a books are like children; they never do exactly what you want them to do, <laughs> and at a certain point in their maturation, like children, books start to push back against the author. And the book is saying, well, I'd like to go this way. And the author is saying, no, I want to go that way. And, and having, a, having a good outline helps, helps the author ride the tiger rather than being ridden by the tiger. So at least that's been my experience as an author. Hmm. Nice. Well, I appreciate you sharing some, some background there. Um, in our short time, we won't be able to do the book uh, justice, but I have a few letters that we can hopefully explore and get into a bit. Uh, and the first one, I, I have a note here you wrote, while Catholicism is a body of beliefs and a way of life, Catholicism is also an optic, a way of seeing things, a distinctive perception of reality. Could you say more about Catholicism as a way of, of seeing? Well, one of the meanings of what biblical religion thinks of as original sin, the, the tendency of human beings to make a mess of things, which sort of goes back 
to the beginning, certainly does in the beginning of the Bible, is to think of that tendency as a combination of myopia. You know, you can only see what's right in front of you. You can't see long distance. And astigmatism. Your your vision is distorted peripherally and, and otherwise. Um, putting on the Catholic faith is not unlike putting on a pair of glasses. The truths of the faith, which are embodied in the creed, uh, help us see not only what's up close, but what's at a distance. They cure our myopia. And they help us see things clearly uh, without prismatic distortion. So they, they cure our astigmatism. Um, in the first letter in the book, I draw on two authors, Flannery O'Connor and Carolyn Gordon Tate, um, to illustrate this. Um, uh, Flannery O'Connor, uh, people don't, many people know about, I'm sure, many of your listeners. Carolyn Gordon Tate was a convert to Catholicism, um, wife of one of the key figures in the Southern literary renaissance of the mid-20th century. Um, uh, and Carolyn Tate said to uh, Flannery O'Connor once um, that having become a Catholic, and now I quote from Flannery O'Connor quoting Carolyn Gordon Tate. I felt uh, she felt she could use her eyes and accept what she saw for the first time. She didn't have to make a new universe for each book, but could take the one she found. I'm curious about you know as you talk about like this lens of Catholicism. I'm thinking of this uh, you know say a person that converts to Catholicism in this idea of maybe putting on a particular new lens. How do you think about the maybe lifelong work of, I don't necessarily want to say cleaning that lens, but you think about the practices, the, the, the rituals, the, you know, the, all the things that come along with this particular way of life. How do you think about you know, the idea of the spiritual path or the spiritual life of continually, I, I guess maybe a way would be to uh, clean, clean our lens or, you know, take another, take another look. Let's be clear, Josh, that Catholicism uh, does not begin with a set of questions and answers. It begins with an encounter with the incarnate Son of God. Jesus Christ, and entering into friendship with him, saying, yes, you, you are the Lord. That's the fundamental confession of Christian faith going back to the New Testament, Jesus Kyrios, Jesus is Lord. 
Now, to say Jesus is Lord implies a whole lot of other things. And to live that friendship with the Lord Jesus, uh, particularly in a situation in which we find ourselves, in which that's a deeply countercultural commitment, um, is not easy. And we all make a mess of it from time to time. That's what we call the sacrament of reconciliation or the sacrament of penance or going to confession is about. It's about cleaning up the lenses. It's, and through an encounter with the Lord, in, in the presence of his ordained priest, we get the lenses clean. We refresh the friendship. Uh, and we can deepen the commitment to bring others into the communion of the friends of the incarnate Son of God. So uh, now, the lenses can also be sharpened uh, in in other ways. Uh, reading the Bible, uh, praying with the Bible. All of the sacraments, especially the Holy Eucharist, which is the most intense and personal encounter uh, that we have with the one we call Lord, uh, these are all ways of, of keeping keeping our vision as as sharp as uh, as possible. Now, uh, Saint Paul reminds us that. In this life, we will always see dimly as in a mirror. Hmm. So, and, and only, only in the fullness of redemption in the kingdom of heaven, in eternal life with God, will we see as clearly as we yearn to see and love as deeply as we yearn to love. And understand far more than we can possibly understand uh, here and now. But we can see more clearly by availing ourselves of all of the ways the church offers us to, as you put it, clean the lenses, or uh, we keep. <laughs> adopting this ophthalmological analogy, refining the prismation of the lens um, as we as we go through our lives. Could you say a bit about this idea of both and that that comes up? I believe it's in in letter one, and maybe we've been talking a little bit of, about it there. Maybe an example is the idea that we can make a mess of things and we can clean clean it up in a way. Um, could you say a bit there, George? Over 2,000 years of Christian history, there has been a temptation, I think, largely among Christian intellectuals, theologians, to, uh, to divvy things up, to divide things up. So, it's either nature or grace. It's either faith or good works. 
it's Jerusalem or Athens, biblical wisdom versus philosophical wisdom. It's either charismatic or it's institutional. Uh, visible and invisible. Catholicism, which is a intensely sacramental faith, says you don't divide things up. It's faith and works. Grace builds on nature. The charismatic element in the church must find a life within the institutional framework of the church that was willed by Christ himself. And most powerfully, the invisible comes to us through the visible. Water becomes the instrument of God's sanctifying grace in baptism. Bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. The really real world, which is the world of the divine, enters the human through these visible, tangible, or if you will, sacramental things. Now, one of the reasons why that's important to stress today is that to reduce the human condition is simply what we can see and hear and taste and touch and smell, is to demean ourselves. A couple of weeks ago, I was reading a long article in The New Yorker about some of the discoveries of the Webb Space Telescope, uh, which has been in place for some months now. It's a fantastic uh, piece of engineering. It allows us uh, literally to see back into the first moments of of the history of what we know as the universe. And something for which I'm happy to pay taxes. Uh, there's a lot of things for which I'm not happy to pay taxes, but the Webb Space Telescope, I'm <laughs> happy to chip in my bit for. The end of this article then said, and so we now know that everything we are, including our bodies and the chemicals that go into them, was implicit in what astrophysicists call the Big Bang, the initial explosion of energy that created the universe, which, by the way, was, was first an idea by a Catholic priest. It was a Catholic priest and physicist who thought his way into this understanding of the origins of the universe. And he says, and so that is the story of our origins. Well, if that's the only story you can tell about human origins, then we're just congealed stardust and our lives mean nothing. Hmm. I mean, if human origins are simply an accident of random cosmic biochemical forces interacting over billions of years since, since the Big Bang, 
then, you know, that is meat is us. Meats are us. Uh, and that's a very dumbed down view of the human condition. I mean, how can you explain love and fidelity? How can you explain the courage on display in Ukraine today? How can you explain the self-sacrifice of a Mother Teresa? Through that stuff. I mean, it just doesn't compute. But worse than that, it, it demeans our sense of ourselves. And then it, it reinforces this really pernicious notion in our culture that we're all just uh, little twitching bundles of desires, that all of those desires are morally equal, and that the meaning of human rights is I have a right to the satisfaction of those desires, whatever they are, and the state should protect and facilitate that. That's a very infantile notion of the human condition. Very infantile notion of the human condition. We're more than that. We're better than that. We're nobler than that. And so eventually, I, you know, I have this weekly column in the Catholic press throughout the English-speaking world. And I'm going to go back to that New Yorker article about the web, the web space telescope, and say, sorry, pal, you know, great article. This last line is beyond stupid. And if you really believed it, why would you find all of this wonderful? Because if you really believed it, it, it just said you're finally just a cipher. What comes to mind around cultivating the ability to see the both and? Because I would imagine that's something challenging for, you know, some devout Catholics as well. It seems like we're, in a way, sometimes... It's like the pendulum swings back from one side to the other on, on certain things. Like to see both and and to hold two things can be a challenging endeavor, I guess. Well, we're not talking about solving contradictions here. We're just talking about seeing things that can seem to be uh, binary options, but that are in fact two sides of the same coin uh, mm. of Christian reality. Now, uh, one of the great achievements of the pontificate of St. John Paul II was the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church is a very both-and book. It explains the truths of Catholic faith in considerable detail. It holds those seemingly divided options, faith, works, institutional, charismatic, uh, revelation and reason uh, together. Beautiful. And so a constant return to... The catechism. There, there are a number of programs around. I don't have any right at hand right now, but you know that that help you read the catechism of the Catholic Church in a year. Not necessarily, you know, straight through from page one to page whatever. But um, uh, and that's that's actually a form of spiritual reading. That's not simply intellectual study. It's a form of spiritual reading, and 
you combine that with these programs about, you know, the Bible in a year, then you're going to be nurturing that capacity uh, not to live in a silo. Mm. You mentioned early in the conversation uh, culture, and there's something that you write in, um, you, you quote Flannery O'Connor in this uh, letter one, says, if you live today, you breathe in nihilism. It's the gas you breathe. And that's uh, quoting O'Connor. What, what does she mean by, you know, breathing in nihilism? I think she meant breathing in the cultural gases that come out of a sense that there are no truths built into the world and into us that the satisfaction of desire is the meaning of happiness, the sole meaning of happiness, that we are ultimately simply smart animals or smarter animals, and that there is no meaning, no final meaning, no definitive meaning to be found in life. So, you know, as they say, a couple of states over from you, laissez le bon temps rouler. Let, <laughs> let the good times roll, because this is it. And um, uh, this notion is now. I mean, this nihilism is everywhere in in our in our culture today. Um, and of course, nihilism comes from a Latin vocabulary that means nothingness. And the notion that there are no deep truths built into the world and into us, that we are condemned to oblivion, both individually and as a species, um, it is pretty well everywhere. Um, and it leads to all sorts of horrible things. Um, uh, so I, I, you know, I think that's what, um, you know, Flannery O'Connor, of course, lived in your state, in Milledgeville. And she was asked once why in her fiction, there were so many grotesques, you know, really weird people. And her answer was, well, down in the South, we like to think that we can still recognize them. <laughs> We've got a real problem recognizing grotesques right now. I could name any number of prominent national political figures who are essentially grotesques. I mean, they're caricatures of civic leadership. Vladimir Putin is a grotesque. And if you don't recognize that, then there's something wrong with you. You're not seeing things for what they are. Um, so... Uh, I think that insight of hers, that one of the diseases of our culture, and of course she was talking about 70 years ago. 
65 years ago. This has metastasized by orders of magnitude since then. That's a pretty good definition of, of our dilemma. Now, what do you do with that as a Catholic? It's not sufficient to say X is a grotesque or Y is a grotesque. We've got to find a way to reach these people with divine truth and divine mercy. And the two go together. And often the most merciful thing we can do for someone is to help them gently but firmly perceive the truth about themselves, which may be that I am a grotesque and I need to seek the help of grace in addressing that and becoming a decent human being. Connected to that, you have a letter on the mystery of evil. And I'm curious, you know, as we're talking about nihilism and, and culture and things like that, could you say more about what Catholicism teaches us in dealing with, uh, you know, suffering and evil that exists in the world? Well, I think, Josh, it's um, helpful to begin with Satan. You know, over the last 50-some years in the Catholic Church, uh, the notion that there are satanic forces at work in the universe, that they can have a profound effect, distorting effect, destructive effect in their lives, has been largely lost in many quarters. Satan has become a metaphor. You know, you say Hitler is satanic. You mean he's a seriously bad guy. Stalin is satanic. Now he's a seriously bad guy. Well, I do a lot of lecturing, speaking, teaching around the country. And over the past five years, I have been profoundly impressed in my conversations with priests from Duluth, Minnesota, to Dallas, Texas, to the West Coast, to your part of the country, to New England, at the increase in exorcisms uh, in the church in, in recent years. Uh, Satan is real. Uh, he's not a metaphor. He and his legions are seeking to fight against everything that the love of God is trying to create in the world. And he has to be resisted. And that's a lifelong project. Uh, but that's a good place to start. Evil is not simply the absence of good. Evil can be personified. It's personified in the reality of Satan and 
those satanic forces I, I referred to. Um, and they can take hold of people. And not simply in terms of full demonic possession, where Satan is the personality. He just owns the personality. But in what the late great father, Benedict Rochelle, uh, founder of the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal, uh, used to call uh, demonic oppression. He, he's got his hooks into you and your your capacity to fight back is is weak. And uh, he hasn't taken over your personality completely. But he's got his hooks into you. So I think it's a sign of health in the church that many, many parishes have restored the old prayer to St. Michael the Archangel at the end of every Mass, St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, etc., etc. Um, this is important uh, uh, to understand. And we need to recover a sense of the reality of, of uh, satanic evil uh, in our midst. Hmm. Now, go ahead. How you say how do, how do we deal with suffering? Well, the the chapter on the mystery of evil and mystery of suffering, I believe, I have to look at my own book here. Um, the the tour site is the starvation bunker at Auschwitz, where. St. Maximilian Kolbe gave his life uh, in place of a, of a condemned prisoner. Kolbe could do that because he had spent the previous decades of his life embracing the mystery of the cross, uh, embracing the Christ who abandoned himself and his will to the will of the Father, and in dying on the cross, open the path to the resurrection. This is another aspect of the Christian life, of Catholic faith, that probably needs a bit more attention these days. And that is that there is no Easter without Good Friday. Good Friday is the portal, if you will, to, to Easter Sunday. Now, Easter Sunday is also the reason why we should be people of joy uh, and people who can convey that divine mercy through our own lives. Because Easter is the guarantee that God is going to win in the end. What the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth means is that at the end of the human story, at the end of the story of creation, 
God is going to get what God intended in the beginning, namely a redeemed, sanctified, divinized creation of eternal life within the light and love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That, that's what Easter means. And because we're the people who know how the story is going to end, we can relax at least a little bit <laughs> about what's going on here and now. I mean, it's not a complete chill. We still have work to do here, uh, including the work of helping everybody else understand. That's, that's the real human story. Um, but we don't have to be completely fretful. God is going to win in the end. And that's already been revealed. That is not a pious hope. That is the reality of the resurrection. And there is no explaining Christianity without the reality of the resurrection. There is no sensible explanation of how a couple of dozen uneducated or ill-educated nobodies from east of nowhere converted somewhere between a third and a half of the Mediterranean world in 250 years uh, without reckoning with the fact that those original nobodies had a life-transforming encounter with the one they had first known as an itinerant rabbi and whom they later met after what they had thought was complete catastrophe as the risen Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, there's just no explaining this in any sensible way without at least considering, if you're a stone heathen, <laughs> the possibility that Jesus of Nazareth was raised from the dead and appeared to his friends and empowered them to lead lives of mission. Hmm. Let me follow up on um, the topic of evil, I guess, if you will. I'm... I'm curious how you think about maybe I want to say humility um, in the way of that, that lens of looking at ourselves as, as a person that is potentially capable of evil or maybe earlier as we were talking about this nihilistic view as a person that is capable of falling into a nihilistic view how do you, is humility the word? Like, how do you think about looking at ourselves and, and maybe being, um, watchful, observant, um, however you might well, say it or think about it. Uh, back in the day, Catholic kids were taught to make a regular examination of conscience. I talked about this in the first letter of the book uh, growing up and, you know, what, what's now clearly the last years of an intact Catholic urban culture in, 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 uh, uh, in the United States. And 
we learned what I call in the book, I think, an etiquette of self-examination. Now, that was usually attached to confession, to the sacrament of penance. Um, but it's a good um, it's a good habit to foster throughout one's daily life. Uh, classical spiritual direction asks people to make an examination of conscience every night. Uh, Compline, the last liturgical hour of the church's liturgical day in the divine office, the breviary, liturgy of the hours, begins with an examination of conscience, a brief examination of conscience, followed by the confidior or some other penitential prayer. That's just a good habit to get into. Um, and then, you know, on a regular basis to bring all of that to the Lord in the person of uh, the confessor in the sacrament of penance is, is as we've discussed, an important part of, of seeing things straight, including seeing ourselves straight. I'm not sure what else to say to that, but I think those are the, those are the important things. No, that's great. And um, another thing I would say is maybe uh, unique to Catholicism. You have a letter on beauty and you write in this yeah. particular that in this letter that beautiful things and beautiful music draw us out of ourselves and into an encounter with a truth that's beyond us yet it's accessible to our senses. Could you say a bit more about the role of beauty in Catholicism? We often talk about the natural and the supernatural as if there were a hard border between them. In fact, in this Catholic sacramental imagination we talked about a moment ago, the Catholic both had, what is between the natural and the supernatural is more like a membrane. And nutrients flow from the supernatural to the natural across that membrane. Icons or beautiful religious paintings, for example, can be part of that membrane. You know, we see these things and we sense the supernatural reality, the divine truths, the divine love that, as Dante said at the end of the Divine Comedy, uh, created uh, the world and all the stars. Um, music, beautiful music, has that effect on me. Uh, it's a it's a membrane like experience to keep using that that image. Um, and in the confusions of this cultural moment, when there's a lot of argument about what is true and a lot of argument and confusion about what is good, an encounter with beauty can open up the question of the true and the good in a distinctive way. When you see something that's beautiful or hear something that's beautiful, you know it's true that it's beautiful. 
It's not just true for you. By the same token, you know that that painting, sculpture, symphony, concerto, chant, folk song is good. So you can't be the skeptic about the true and the good that you might think you are if you're immersed in the beauty of, in some cases, the natural world. Cardinal Avery Dulles, a great American theologian uh, who died in uh, 2008, early 2009, was a, was a dear friend of mine. Uh, son of Secretary of State during the Eisenhower administration, John Foster Dulles, and and came out of the second. His father was the most prominent Protestant layman in America, John Foster Dulles, head of the Federal Council of Churches, you know, big Protestant cheese. Avery, during his years at Harvard, when he entered Harvard, was an atheist. I mean, he had ceased to believe in the God of the Bible. And then one day he was walking along the Charles River and talks about seeing, being struck by the beauty of a raindrop on the leaf of a tree. Hmm. And saying to himself, this can't be an accident. And that was the beginning of his path back to Christian faith, ultimately to the Catholic Church, to the Society of Jesus, to being the first American theologian to be named a cardinal, uh, and a revered teacher and, and friend. Uh, so that's a good example of that. And it's a different kind of example. It's not like listening to the Mozart Ave Verum, but it's a, <laughs> it's a different kind of example. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's a, a fascinating thing. I, I recently um, did an episode uh, with the author of The Entanglement talking about philosophy and art. But I remember um, another previous episode on C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man and the idea of uh, beauty and art, I want to say is maybe some sort of like antidote to subjectivism. Um, yeah, so, I, I think that's what I was just talking about, yeah. uh, Josh. I mean, you know it's good. Not any argument about that. And you know it's true that it's good. Yeah. And um, one of the great – well, I, I'll, here, here's an experience that I had. I, I was in Moscow and what was then still the Soviet Union in September of 1990. And I was there with a group of American uh, activists, uh, democracy activists, human rights activists, discussing how do you create a democracy with people who were the democratic opposition to the Soviet regime. One day, a colleague and I hired a kid who had been hanging around our hotel lobby, obviously wanting to practices English to take us through the Kremlin. Inside the Kremlin, there are three great religious structures that Russian Orthodoxy calls cathedrals. Uh, 
we were coming up the stone staircase of one of these cathedrals in the Kremlin. And at the top of the staircase is a huge, I mean, must have been 10 feet by 6 feet, gorgeously restored medieval fresco of the Last Supper. And very fine piece of art. And this young man said to my friend and me, please tell me who are those men and what are they doing? He was a bright kid. He was probably in his mid-20s. Obviously had very good language skills. He had been culturally lobotomized to the point where he could not recognize I think one of the three great images in Christian history, you, you know, you've got Calvary, you've got the last supper and you've got the manger. I mean, if you don't know what that is, then you are clearly from another planet here, but you know, how many of our contemporaries are in that pathetic position, sad position? and therefore can't encounter the truth and the good because they have no idea what the beauty means. Well, if we can get them to at least understand that it's beautiful, maybe we can start working, uh, working on them from, uh, from there. But that was a powerful experience. That was 30, my, that was 33 years ago. And it, it still sticks in 33 years ago this month. Wow. wow. And it still, uh, still sticks in my, uh, my head. So, well, beautiful. We'll have to wrap it up there, George. Uh, this has been great. We've been talking about your book, Letters to a Young Catholic. We'll put links in the show notes for the listeners to many of your other books so they can learn more. George Weigel, thank you so much for coming on In Search of Wisdom. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Josh. Good to have been with you. I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for listening. I hope you found something useful. If so, I encourage you to put what you heard into practice. If you're interested in more podcasts, meditations, and courses on the art of living, consider checking out our daily newsletter, Perennial Meditations on Substack. Until next time, be wise and be well.